Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Peru's crisis continues to rage, with protests almost daily on the streets of Lima. Is there any possibility for a political agreement that could restore a degree of peace? There needs to be a minimal political agreement that doesn't compromise our future progress and our future development as a country. If that pragmatic agenda doesn't really prevail, then I think we're up for a really, really rocky ride. And we may be talking a year from now and things will still be very much stuck in the stalemate. Over the last four years, we've seen dramatic protests sweep one country after another in Latin America, from Chile to Ecuador to Colombia and beyond. But even by those standards, what's been happening in Peru seems particularly scary and unpredictable. At least 55 people have been killed, most of them in clashes with security forces. And it's really hard right now to see a way out of this. On one side, you have the protesters making demands for President Dina Boluarte to resign and or call early elections. Some are also demanding a new constitution. President Boluarte, for her part, is refusing to give in, apparently betting that she has enough support from Lima's establishment and the middle class to hold her ground, even if that means further bloodshed. Today on the AQ Podcast, we'll look at the current state of affairs and whether there is any realistic middle ground that could address the legitimate demands of Peruvian society for greater social protections and rights without completely throwing out the economic framework that allowed Peru to have one of the region's most successful records of reducing poverty over the last 30 years. Our guest to walk us through all of this is Luis Miguel Castillo. He is an economist He's also the former finance minister of Peru between 2011 and 2014, and a former ambassador to the United States. So let's get started. Miguel, you're in Lima, where the protests have intensified over the past several days. We've seen images of burning buildings, security forces knocking down the gates of a university, even to arrest people inside. So my question is, what's it like to be there right now? What are the conversations that people are having within their families, on the streets, on social media, and elsewhere? I think it's the first time that we are, for a long time, I think a similar situation was felt really about over 20 years ago with the uh, last days of the Fujimori regime in 2001, when we had this amount of social turmoil in the country. The feeling here, has been now today is of tense calm in Lima. We were actually feeling completely threatened that all of the violence that we have been seeing in TV was transported to Lima. And you could see it in the evening where many districts were as if there was a curfew. And that didn't happen, fortunately, but there's this sense that we are in the middle of a crisis that doesn't really have a solution in the short term. And we are in stuck in a very bad equilibrium. You mentioned this bad equilibrium. Miguel, you were the finance minister from 2011 to 2014 under President Olanta Umala. That was an era, not so long ago, in which there seemed to be a certain consensus in Peru around at least some basic principles. Democracy, a market-based economy that had enormous success, not just in 
achieving GDP growth, but also in reducing poverty over the course of many years. What changed? Why did this basic consensus come unraveled and take us to where we are today? Brian, I think there's a few things. Uh, Let me highlight three things that are different today from a decade ago. One is that Peru, as much of Latin America, was going through a boom period of high commodity prices. Growth was, on average, during my four years in office, was uh, 6% GDP growth, and poverty was uh, going down. And then a few things happened. The world started changing. We had a negative shock in our terms of trade. The second thing that happened was that there was um, an election in 2016 that is a turning point, which uh, very similar-minded candidates, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski on the one hand and Keiko Fujimori on the other hand. Keiko Fujimori was defeated very narrowly, but she got a grip of Congress. And ever since, we've gone into a phenomenon we hadn't seen in many years. Government without majority in Congress doesn't terminate its period in office. And there's been a recurrent governance crisis and political crisis over the past six years. The third thing is that this governance crisis came with corruption uh, that uh, led to a, a lot of our leaders face corruption probes, some of them being jailed. And this is an ongoing process, not only in Peru, but uh, in most Latin America. And the last important trigger for changes was the pandemic, a pandemic that was ill-managed. We had a sad uh, record of having the country with the highest death toll per capita, along with the sharpest collapse in our GDP growth. So all of this combination of issues makes governing a country quite more challenging now than what it was a decade ago. Let me ask you, though, there's been so much discussion around these protests now about inequality in Peru and these vast gaps that exist between the countryside and the South, which is where the protests started, and the urban environment in Lima in particular. Do you think it's fair to say that Peru did not do enough during those good years to address some of those social inequalities, or does does it look different from the perspective of someone who was actually in charge during those years in the way that you were? I think you can always do more, for sure. But I think what actually changed was that instead of governing the country and dealing with closing these gaps, these social gaps that you mentioned, we had uh, politicians embroiled in infighting the executive branch versus the Congress. And on the other hand, we've had a very, very unsuccessful, not to say failed, decentralization process, which a lot of functions were given to local and regional governments without the capacities and without the appropriate accountability. More can be done, and and we're seeing this as the brewing ground of all these conflicts We're seeing a lot of inequality and gaps that haven't been narrowed. But it would be unfair to say that the model has failed because we actually were countries since 1993 with the sharpest drop in in poverty in Latin America, perhaps not as fast as we've hoped for. And now evidently 
insufficient to generate enough social cohesion in a country to feel satisfied. And what we have is a lot of angry people with legitimate claims that they haven't seen you know, any benefit from the current model. Well, so let's talk about the politics of the current situation, because it does seem like there's an impasse. Protesters say that they will continue to be on the streets until President Boluarte steps down or brings forward the elections. She says she will not concede. What happens next? Well, the thing is that one has to understand that President Boluarte, you know, is not the originator, it's not the source of the problem. She's the vice president of a president that attempted to do a coup d'etat, and she has, you know, the legal capacity to rule the country, but she lacks the legitimacy of the population. 80% of the population, you know, don't like her, disapprove her, and 90% of the population dislike Congress as well. So this is a very, very severe, severe crisis. And when you're seeing what are the motivations for those that are in the streets, it's not really, you know, inequality. It's not really lack of appropriate services. It's not really accountability. It's really political and political meaning that the only way to be able to have a, you know, new elections be accepted by all is to impose and to force a constitutional moment. That is to get rid of the constitution that we've had for the past 30 years. And to follow the steps of a country like Chile, for instance, that opened that uh, Pandora's box without as a panacea. And here that our constitution, which is a very liberal one that explains a lot of the progress that we've seen macroeconomically and this sharp reduction in poverty is blamed as sort of the responsible for all Peru's problems. And that is sort of maximalist objectives is really what is not enabling us to you know, go beyond this crisis point. So that's the leftist and the different groups that support this. And the right extremists saying, you know, we should completely not tolerate violence and everyone is a terrorist. (laughs) So this is a very, very polarized society. And here one would think, okay, let's go back to polls and, and have new elections. But about a third of the country wants a new constitution about the other third are completely opposed to this, and the remainder are a little bit lost of what to do. So I think what the best solution to this is to Congress rapidly approve early elections and to have uh, minimum political reforms being approved by Congress, which are constitutional changes. If we don't deal with that and we go to elections, we may be in an even worse situation because we're going to have radical candidates running for office and we're going to be stuck in perhaps an even worse uh, scenario. That would be sort of the reasonable thing to do. The problem is that we have violence and this has to end. And for this to end, you need a leadership that is credible and then can convene the parts. But in this, we don't have uh, the leadership that actually can convey uh, a national dialogue. When we come back, Miguel assesses what he thinks the end game is for Peru's right and left, as well as for President Boluarte. The America's Quarterly Podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company. Boeing supports the commitment of Latin America's aviation industry to reach net zero by the year 2050. Boeing has led this effort by committing to certify its aircraft to fly on 100% sustainable fuels, 
and welcomes recent commitments by airlines in the region to increase their use. Miguel, one of the things I was hoping that you'd be able to help us with today is trying to understand a little more about the various players here. And the first one is President Boluarte. I've never met her, but I have to confess, after several weeks of following this crisis, I still don't feel like I understand who she is and what she wants. This was a figure, she was in Peru Libre, the leftist party, former President Castillo's party, but then she broke with the party before Castillo was impeached and arrested. Now, the way that people on the left talk about her, you'd almost think that she was like this far-right figure. What motivates her? What do you think she wants in the middle of all this? That's a good question, because uh, it's a reflection of having very weak political parties, because uh, she was an obscure public official, you know, that joined the ticket. But she was sort of a person that has been improvising in office. Her rhetoric has been changing. And the prime minister is really, who in my view, is really running the country. He was a former defense minister, more savvy politically, more experienced. And she seems to be trying to find her way, her role in this very intricate uh, political stalemate, but without you know, much background to support her. So it is really a lot of improvisation. She's improvising her daily interventions and basically without political support. But it is really a consequence of having this failed political system governing us for the past decades in, in the country. My sense is that Boluarte, at least for now, enjoys some support, probably not enthusiastic support, but some support from another major player in this crisis, which is essentially the establishment in Lima, the business community, parts of the media, others who basically see the situation as the following. They see a radical left that smells blood in the water and is trying to push this crisis as far as it can go in the hopes of, as you said, getting a new constitution and taking power. What do they want, though? Are they hoping that a right-wing figure such as the mayor of Lima Rafael Lopez Aliaga will take power, or are they just trying to basically survive to tomorrow and keep this fragile, flawed system that's been in place for the last several years in place for as long as they can? I think the main fear is communist rule. And one has to understand Peru's historical background. No, this is a country that in its history during the 20th century was We've had attempts at the communist overtake. And also we have a million Venezuelans here in Peru that are fleeing from authoritarian uh, socialist regimes uh, such as Venezuela. And the uh, shield for this has been our constitution. On the other hand, the left in, in Peru has always seen Fujimori's constitution as sort of the, the nemesis of all the injustices and of everything that is wrong with this country. President Boluarte, going back to your initial question, and the right wing and, and more conservative segments of society find her now as the only way to avoid us falling into the trap of communism and constitutional change and reverting sort of this 30-year progress 
which definitely hasn't benefited at all. But Peru today is a very, very different country from what it used to be back in the 80s and early 90s. She's a representative of the establishment and their fight towards keeping the status quo, you know, unchanged in terms of the economic model that we have. And so finally, Miguel, the other major player in this is the left. And that includes people like Vladimir Serron, who the head of Peru Libre, which was well originally both the party of Castillo and Boluarte, as we've said, other federations, uh, important political groups in Peru's South. You referenced in your article for America's Quarterly that there have been intelligence reports suggesting perhaps some foreign role in the organization or at least promoting of these protests by perhaps the governments of Venezuela and Bolivia, among others. Is their plan just to keep pushing at this point until something breaks and they get what they want? Or is there some sort of reasonable middle of the road solution like the kind that you're suggesting that might, under the right circumstances, capture their support? The thing, Brian, is that what we're seeing, it is a narrative of changing sort of an economic model to favor sort of ideological objective of having a more, you know, social cohesive, more equitable country. But that's really, in my view, an excuse. But what we've seen is that when they were in office in the past, during Castillo's administration, Nothing was done at all to actually be able to have a more redistributive agenda and to actually start closing the gaps of most segments of the population. It is really a political agenda of who runs the show more than actually pursuing a pragmatic uh, program, pragmatic plans or policies. There are many things that can be changed. And I don't want to be dogmatic defending our constitution. But I've been asked many times, so what would you change? If you had to change something, what would you change? And I would change definitely, you know, all the political uh, chapters in terms of having uh, more checks and balances and eliminating the source of uh, instability that we're seeing politically. I would change the chapter that rules the way that natural resources and the rent coming from that is administered in the country. You know, I wouldn't go back to status policies of having SOEs, state-owned enterprises, generating wealth in the country. I wouldn't go against the contracts that we've signed with investors. So those are the things that, that they want, and setting capital controls and, and price controls. So it's re-enacting policies that were pursued in this country back in the 70s and 80s that led to the collapse of the country, and really, really to what countries nowadays are struggling with, Argentina and other countries you know, we were seeing that those policies fail to actually improve welfare and to have more, a better managed economy and, and generate uh, more well-being. And we do have a problem here, a structural problem that the country, in spite of its richness and natural resources and the fact that it's a very well-managed country macroeconomically, is a country where disaffection is at its highest. And so there's something that needs to be fixed. And that fixing is having the right adequate structure in terms of government services, in terms of private sector, changing also the ways that they do business. Otherwise, you know, we may go back to erasing 30 years of progress and be back where we were in 1990, in the worst time and where the country really was completely in shambles and considered a failed state. So we're far from that. 
but the perception is similar to that time. And so I think the agenda is really one in which we tackle those issues, but it seems to me that it cannot be a zero-sum game. We have to find a way to reach a minimum agenda and have the right leadership to find a common ground to actually go past this, again, negative stalemate that, that the country is going through. I want to talk about the current state of Peru's economy. Throughout this period of political trouble that the country's been experiencing really since 2016, the economy remained stable, at least. It didn't grow at the same rates that it did in the late 2000s and the early 2010s, but Wall Street in particular has almost developed a habit of ignoring the politics in Peru because the economy always did okay. I think that has clearly changed with this crisis. You you talk to people now and they understand that what's happening today is different. But what do you see in terms of the risks for Peru's economy? What do you hear about the mood of investors? Are there people who think that actually the country could still get through this okay at the end of the day? I think that's beginning to be less of the case now than previously. About 60% of the variability in GDP growth depends really on external factors, global growth, terms of trade, and 40% internal factors. And now those internal factors really are actually affecting investor confidence. And there is this uh, crisis. And I think the benign scenario is to have a stagnation, to have a country that stagnates growth rate of around 2%, which would put per capita growth nil. (laughs) And that actually will start brewing sort of a setback in social progress because we need at least 4 or 5% growth to be able to generate enough jobs. What we've seen is that uh, private investment and jobs generated from private investment have been the main source of poverty reduction. So that is the main risk in a benign scenario. And also it assumes that there's not going to be a change in the constitution. If there's a change in the constitution and a replacement by disruptive policies and statist policies put in place, I think that may harm eventually our macroeconomic strength. Well, and this leads to my final question, Miguel, which is over the course of this podcast, you have told us how things could go and how they should go. And you've laid out a path that under democracy would maintain the pillars of, you know, the parts of the system that have served Peru well in terms of reducing poverty while compensating for some of the model shortcomings over the last 10, 20 years or longer. My final question for you, though, is how do you think this will go if you were to bet on how the next two to three years will proceed based on what we know today? What is your base scenario for politics and the economy? That is a very difficult question to answer. Six weeks ago, we had no idea that things would unravel in such a way and that Castillo would be out of office. And so this is a very, very volatile country. I would tend to think that uh, things are going to get worse before they start improving. And what may actually shift this towards a more reasonable outcome is if the people that are now in the streets and they're seeing their well-being and their sources of income affected, they're going to realize that they need to, you know, survive. They need to generate 
they need to work, they need to uh, attend their daily uh, you know needs, and reality is going to start imposing itself that there needs to be a minimal you know political agreement that doesn't compromise our future progress and our future development as a country. So for that to happen, I think we need to have uh, different players, different players leading the country and an agenda of minimal objectives that are common to the country. I think if we don't have water in the country, that is something that is quite, uh, you know, shouldn't be ideological. We're not there yet, but maybe if things really start affecting the pockets and the well-being of people, then they'll be more pragmatic and they'll start being more in the center and less in the extremes. If that pragmatic agenda doesn't really prevail, then I think we're up for a really, really rocky ride. And we may be talking a year from now and things will still be very much stuck in the stalemate. Well, Miguel, as you said, things are moving so quickly and we're lucky to have guides like you who can help us understand all of this. So thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much, Brad. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.